Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. There is uh, an ingredient that is present in our relationships. It's often an unspoken ingredient present in all of our relationships. And in some relationships, this ingredient, it kind of takes center stage and it plays kind of a key role. And in other relationships, this ingredient might be kind of off to the side, but it's still there and it's still an important thing for us to be aware of. And this ingredient in, in some relationships can cause tremendous just heartache and frustration, and in other ways, this ingredient can be the source of tremendous joy and fulfillment. And this ingredient that's found in in these relationships, it's found in our relationship with our mother and our father and our brother and our sister and our sons and our daughters and our uh, aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews. And, And you actually, even in the way we talk about these relationships, this ingredient is subtly alluded to. Because this ingredient is gender. And, you know, we've uh, been entering into this series, Storm-Tossed Families. And this series has been based uh, loosely on a book by the same uh, title, The Storm-Tossed Family. And as I was prepping for this series, I was reading through this book, there's one chapter in particular that really gripped me. And the, the title of the chapter was Man and Woman at the Cross. And as I was reading through this chapter, it really challenged me to reevaluate how I understand the biblical, under, uh, the biblical idea of gender and what the Bible has to say about gender and, of equal importance, what the Bible doesn't have to say about gender. And this is an important conversation to have because gender, it, it is in all of our relationships and it plays a role, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, but it's present in all of our relationships. If, if relationships are like cocktails, gender is kind of like the alcohol content, right? Not all uh, cocktails have the same alcohol content and not all cocktails can you tell the alcohol content from like that first sip. But, and I know this is something that you guys have never experienced before, but if you start throwing back cocktails and you aren't aware of the alcohol content, right? If you're oblivious to the alcohol content and you just start throwing back cocktails, you're going to start to make some big mistakes real fast, right? It's going to get messy real fast. And I know you only know this through, you know, some of those people that you know. You've never experienced this yourself. But when it comes to gender and relationships, if it's something that we're oblivious to, if we're not aware of it and we're not aware of how God designed gender and what the purpose is behind it, we can trample over 
people, we can make mistakes, we can quickly find ourselves in situations that we regret how we acted. And so this morning, I want to take some time to look at how the Bible talks about gender. And uh, if you have a a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to go all the way back to the beginning to look at what, uh, what happened when God created gender to begin with and what he said about the situation and some of the, the key ideas behind it and the, the big picture of why gender exists to begin with. Uh, but as we, we start to dive in, before we do, a couple of ground rules, things just to kind of keep in the back of your mind, all right? So one of the cool things about being in Western American society, is there are a lot of things in our society that were shaped by the Bible and by Christianity, uh, which is pretty cool. Like a lot of our cultural ideas really came out of scripture. Uh, and so there's some things we read in the Bible and it just feels right. Like it feels natural to us and that's great. But at the same time, there are a lot of things in our culture and our society that don't line up with scripture. And there are going to be times when we're reading the Bible and we're going to read things that feel uncomfortable and kind of contradict our personal sensibilities. And if God exists outside of us, right, if God is real, if he exists outside of me, then it's likely he's going to contradict me and even confuse me at times. And so as we come to this text, we have to come with that understanding that there might be things that the Bible says or doesn't say that are, they contradict our own personal sensibilities and that we have an opportunity there to humble ourselves before God. But there's a third category as well, and there are things that the Bible, uh, it doesn't affirm or contradict. It doesn't really say anything about them. And uh, these are, are kind of fall under an umbrella term that the Apostle Paul uh, distinguishes as disputable issues, all right? Things that the Bible isn't explicitly clear on, they're disputable issues. And he has really good advice for you and me when it comes to disputable issues. He says, so whatever you believe about these things, i.e. disputable issues, keep between yourself and God. There you go. So if there are things, you know, ideas and opinions that you have uh, that aren't coming from Scripture, that's fine. You can hold those opinions. Just Keep them to yourself. So uh, we're going to dive in and look at and try to understand what it is the Bible does and does not say about gender. In Genesis uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, this is just after God creates Adam. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Say suitable helper. All right. He says, I'm going to make a suitable helper for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. And says, but for Adam, no what? No suitable helper was found. And so we're starting with this idea that Eve is going to be created in the absence of something, something that God identifies as a suitable helper. And we need to define these terms a little bit because this word suitable, uh, you guys know that the Bible wasn't written in English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so we need to understand what the, the original author intended from these words. So this word suitable, it means equal and adequate. So Eve was created to be equal and adequate. That's part of what God said Adam needs. And this is what we see in Genesis 1. It says, so God created mankind in his own image, right? Mankind, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So we see right off the bat that Eve and Adam created equal, both in the image of God, and Eve is adequate for the mission. Because what's the mission? 
be fruitful and increase in number. Is Adam going to be able to accomplish that on his own? Nope. (laughs) So God creates Eve, this suitable helper. But now we need to look at this word helper, right? Because we, again, it's the English word helper. It can, can bring up all sorts of connotations that uh, the original text doesn't necessarily have. For instance, uh, Robert is technically my boss. And there are times where Robert will be working on a task and he will call me up to his office and he say, Trevor, I need your help with something. And so I will assist him on his task kind of as, as one below helping one above. But there's other times where I'll be working on something or I'll be in the midst of something and I'll call Robert down and say, Robert, I need your help with this. And in the same way, he will be able to help and assist me. But in this case, it's someone from above coming down to help. So the the word help, it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, an assistant or a secretary, even though it's easy to read it that way, right? That Eve is the assistant to the regional manager, uh, right? Uh, But, all right, this word azer, everybody say azer, all right, that's translated helper, all right, it shows up twice here in Genesis and three other times in the Old Testament in this capacity. And all three other times, it's used to describe God. God was my helper, right? He is your shield and helper against me, against your helper, right? And what's of uh, critical importance to take into consideration is these first two, Exodus and Deuteronomy, were both written by Moses. You know what else was written by Moses? Genesis. So it's the same author uses this word four times, two times to refer to Eve, two times to refer to God. Do you think that he is using this word to mean an assistant or a secretary or somebody from who is below assisting somebody who's above? And then there's this third one, which is in Hosea. All right. Now, if you don't know the story of Hosea, you should read it at some point. It's so cool. But in Hosea, the dominant picture that's being painted is that God is the husband, the groom to Israel, his people, who is his bride. So that's the dominant picture cast throughout the book of Hosea. And in here, God, who is pictured as the groom, identifies himself as their helper. And so he's flipping the role a little bit. And it's important for us to kind of take this into consideration when we read the word helper. He's not saying that Eve was created to be Adam's undersecretary, his personal assistant, his assistant to the regional manager. It's a very different idea. And so if this word helper is confusing for you, if for you you can't read that without thinking personal assistant, then I give you full authority to just scratch it out in your Bible and write Azer, because that was the original word that was there anyway, and now you can know that Azer does not mean personal secretary, right? And this is something that we see, is not only was Eve created equal to Adam, but she is in salvation at the cross in redemption equal to Adam. It says there's no, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ. So we are equal in Christ and our redemption. And Peter even says that in our glory we're equal. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So men and women are both heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, and we look forward to being in that same glorified state such that such that even the most manliest of men in the room, however you want to define that, if you came across the frailest of women in her glorified state, you would fall on your face and cower in fear. Because man and woman who are found in Christ and glorified and resurrected with him, 
have this same equal standing, they will be judging angels, right? You, as a man or a woman, you have this glory ahead of you that you will be judging angels. You are co-heirs with Christ. Russell Morey says, if we don't start with the truth of a common humanity in the creation and in the crucifixion, we will end up deifying gender distinctions in ways that harm one another and lead us to worship a different God. And so we need to be really cautious as we enter into this gender conversation that we understand that men and women are equal in creation, equal in redemption, will be equal in glory. But that's not where the story stops. It continues in verse 21. It says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. You get this kind of repeated idea that whatever Eve is, she is distinct from Adam. And remember the problem that God is solving. God says it's not good for Adam to be alone, right? And I don't know if you ever thought about this. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Why didn't God just make more Adams? I mean, obviously, from our perspective, it's like, you know, sexual procreation. But God could have changed that. He could have, like, we could have been self-reproducing beings like they exist in the world. Why didn't he just make more Adams? But we have to understand that this story about the creation of Adam and Eve is actually, it finds itself in the broader creation story. This is the very end of the creation story. So chapters, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are giving this creation narrative. And this is the end. Like, you turn the page and it goes to a new story about the fall of humanity. But the creation of Adam and Eve is the crown of the creation narrative. And I think we need to read it in light of the whole creation narrative. Because at the, the very beginning, at the very beginning, and like verse one, sentence one of the Bible, we get uh, what? In the beginning, God created the, I think we could do that a little bit better. In the beginning, God created the? The heavens and the earth, right? So the very first thing that God does is he actually creates two distinct yet interrelated entities, right? It is heaven and earth. They're distinct from one another. They're different, but at the same time, they're, they're interrelated, and the next thing it says is that uh, God said, let there be light. And it says that God separated, right? He separated the light from the dark. And he called the one day and the other night. And then there was morning and then there was evening and it was the first day, right? He creates these distinctive entities and then he brings them together. And then the very next thing it says is that God separated, right? He separated the waters from above and the waters from below, right? And he, he created the earth below and the atmosphere above, these two separate entities that interlock and are interrelated corollaries to one another. And the very next thing is, is that God separated, again, separated the waters from dry land. And he took these two separate entities that are interrelated together. And then we get, you, you see the pattern that's obviously recurring over and over again here. And then we get to the end and we see Adam and God creates Adam, and God says, it's not good for him to be alone. It's not just, it's not just about him being alone as in lonely. It's that he is, he is half 
of a whole. God created him in such a way that he was missing his separate, distinct, but interrelated counterpart. And God creates Eve. So the, the distinction between male and female, it's not an accident. It's not an afterthought. It's actually woven right into the fabric of everything that God created because he has this purpose of creating these distinct entities that he brings together and unites in one. Tim and Kathy Keller, he says, this means that our maleness and our femaleness is not incidental to our humanness, but constitutes the very essence. God doesn't make us into generic humanity that's later differentiated. Rather, from the start, we are male and female, right? This is woven right into the very fabric of creation, these distinctions between male and female. Yes, we are equal in our creation and our redemption and our glory, but we are distinct from one another. And as we have these conversations about gender and how it affects our relationships, we have to start here, that we are equal and yet we are distinct from one another. But when it comes to these distinctions, there's a a couple of errors that we can uh, easily fall into if we're not careful. And the first error is that we can try to flatten our distinctions, right? We try to flatten our distinctions. We start to say that, you know, actually the things that make a man a man and a woman a woman, they aren't really there. They're social constructs, and we're, we're essentially the same thing. And, and there's a, a strain of feminism, right? There's a strain of feminism that might try to do this. And it doesn't just say that, uh, you know, men and women are equal, right? Now, now men and women are. Right? And, and when it comes to certain strains of feminism, Christians, we should be on board with this. Like if there's ever a group of people that's saying women are, should be under men and are less than men and you know, should be dominated by men, that's not biblical. And we should stand against that. But it's very different to say that men and women are equal and to say that they are the same. Right? And when we start to flatten those, those uh, differences and those distinctions and try to remove them, all of a sudden, there's nothing to hold us together anymore, right? And those, those distinctions are what, what keep us together. Furthermore, furthermore, when you flatten out those distinctions and you say we're essentially the same thing, now you take a look at it and it's like, well, why do I need two of the same thing? I could just live with this one, right? When we say that men and women are, in essence, the same, we're also saying that they're interchangeable, It also means that either one is dispensable. But when we say that men and women are distinct, that there are real distinctions between men and women, we're actually saying, no, no, no. You can't just rip them apart. You can't say that all we need is men or all we need is women. We can't get rid of one. Each one is indispensable to the plan of God and to our human flourishing, right? And so in in some ways we can get in trouble if we start to flatten these, but it's not only in kind of like political and social realms that we try to flatten uh, gender distinctions. This can actually come right home, especially if you're married, all right? This can come right home into how you relate to your spouse. Because there are times, and I, I know, all right, I know there are times where your husband or your wife does things that frustrate you. And they're not wrong, you just don't like it. And, and very often, not always, but very often, some of these differences, are, they do kind of fall along the line of, of some of our gender pulls and, and everything like that. And, you know, I'm going to appeal to some stereotypes. And I know they're stereotypes. I know they're not universals. But wives, if, if your husband 
doesn't emote like you, if your husband doesn't process things the same way, if your husband comes home from work, all right, and you ask him, how was his day? And he doesn't give you the play-by-play of every detail that happened along the way and what he ate for lunch and how the sandwich today was a little different than the sandwich yesterday, but it, it was better than it was last Tuesday, but it was never as good as that one time he went out with John from accounting and they got to talking and he heard all about his vacation and all of that. And when you, your husband comes home from work and you say, how was your day? And he says, fine, and says nothing more, that's okay. Like, you don't have to like it, but it's okay for you to say he's not like me and affirm that and love him and accept that for it, right? And there are going to be distinctions, things that are are different in our relationships that will fall along, you know, male-female lines. And it gets really blurred, and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But with these these distinctions, we don't want to flatten them out because those are some of the things that hold us together when we learn to affirm and appreciate and, and even celebrate these distinctions in one another. And men... Men, all right, don't get frustrated when your wife doesn't have the same sex drive as you, (laughs) right? Or that she's not turned on by the same things as you, which is pretty much everything and anything, (laughs) right? And don't get frustrated that, you know, she has a more complicated sexuality. She's different and it's distinct. And yes, you know, it might be tempting to say, oh, I want her to be like me, but no, you don't, <laughs> right? Remember that you don't. You want to appreciate the distinctions there and affirm them and even celebrate them, even if there's, there's like an inconvenience or a cost because it's in these distinctions that they, they hold us together, right? And so the well, one direction is that we could take our distinctions and we could try to flatten them out, but the other error is that we can start to overdefine our distinctions. And we start to add on this whole list of like, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. We, we create these really developed ideas and narrow pictures of manhood and womanhood. Uh, but, but the Bible doesn't give us a very narrow picture of manhood or womanhood. It, it doesn't. And I, I really did my best to look this week. In fact, uh, if you look through scripture, do you know what, define, like what makes a man and what makes a woman? It's not a what. It's a who. God makes a man, God, ma- God makes a man, God makes a woman, and it's biology. Like, there actually isn't other stuff that are universally, like, this is how men are and this is how women are, not according to the Bible. And so when we start adding on all of these extra things and saying, well, a man, it looks like this, and, you know, uh, you know every man is a warrior, and they have this wild soul, and they need to release that, and, uh, and, and that's just not true, biblically speaking. Like, if you, you read through the scripture, uh, think about Jacob and Esau, right? Esau, he was like the wild hunter, hairy man. His dad loved him. He was his, you know, dad's kid. Uh, and then there was Jacob the hairless mama's boy who was home cooking stew. And who did God choose? Jacob. Now, it would be wrong to say that God chose Jacob because he was like Jacob and not like Esau. That's not it. But you see that those distinctions aren't part of God's understanding of what manhood and and, uh, womanhood look like. So what I did is I, I kind of went through and I took some biblical principles. I wanted to put together a, just like a list of qualities that go into biblical manhood. How does this sound for you guys? So a man, his wife has full confidence in him because of him. She lacks nothing. He brings her good, not harm, all the days of his life. He works with eager hands. 
He gets up while it's still night to provide for his family and his employees. He considers an investment and buys it. And out of his earnings, he does something fruitful. He sets about his work vigorously. His arms are strong for his task. He opens his arms to the poor and extends his hands to the needy. When storms come, he has no fear for his household, for all of them are covered. He is clothed with strength and dignity, and he can laugh at the days to come. He speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on his tongue. He watches over the affairs of his household and avoids idleness. His children look up to him, and his wife respects him. Above all, he fears the Lord. It's a pretty good picture of uh, biblical manhood, right? Uh, There's one problem. Uh, Some of you might have picked this up. I actually took all of this from Proverbs 31, which if you're familiar with Proverbs 31, it is the description of a godly woman. (laughs) I just changed the pronouns, right? So all of this is actually what Scripture says a godly woman looks like, which is very similar to a godly man as far as some of the the distinctions that we might throw into what it looks like to be a man and what it looks like to be a woman. And there are are distinctions. You kind of see the distinctions when you take a step back and you look at the macro level. Like when you look at womankind and mankind, you get to see that there are contributions of womankind that mankind desperately needs. And there's contributions of mankind that womankind desperately needs. But how these fall out in like the, the micro sense. Not every man looks like every other man. And not every woman looks like every other woman. If you go through scripture, you actually don't find a, a picture of biblical manhood or a picture of biblical womanhood. Because there's not one narrow picture. Where are my type A people You guys know who you are, right? I'm sorry. It's just not, I wish I could give you like a nice clean little box and like this is what it looks like. But God doesn't give us that option. He leaves it fairly broad to say that what makes a man and makes a woman is him. Not their interests or their, you know, predispositions to certain things that culture says are, you know, these are the things men do and these are the things women do. And even in in scripture where we see commands directed specifically at men and women, what they're usually addressing is they take how culture, the culture of the day defined manhood or womanhood and it challenges those. So in, in, uh, for instance, in 1 Peter, Peter gives this charge to women because in his day, I know this is going to be hard to relate to, but in his day, apparently women found their identity and worth in their physical beauty. I know it's hard to imagine a world where women find their worth and value in physical beauty, but they would spend all this money in trying to look good and adorn themselves with fancy clothes and jewelry and everything like that. And Peter speaks to that and he says, no, 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 don't go after that. Go after an inner beauty. This isn't to say that there are never men who struggle with vanity. It's just by and large in his society, this was how like culture expressed femininity in a way that he had a challenge and he tries to squash it. At the same time, he gives husbands this advice to be considerate and respectful to their wives. Because in a society that was largely patriarchal and where husbands could just trample over their wives and treat them like property, right? This is how masculinity had manifested itself, and he actually speaks into that and says, no, 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 that's not what, how God looks at a man. It's not by his power to dominate his wife, no. Being considerate and respectful and loving to his wife. And so what we get is we get these little snapshots of what manhood and womanhood isn't, (laughs) rather than getting a, a clearly defined picture of what it is. 
And we have to be careful because culture and society is always trying to give us a, a more perfect definition, a more refined, narrower definition of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. Right? In our society today, there's a, a couple of different versions of manhood. On the one end, you have this idea that men, like a real man, is this like, self-confident aggressor. Right? Like, that's what manhood is. And if you try to take away any of that aggression, you're trying to neuter him. Uh, like, this is actually a message that's out there in our society. But you look at scripture, and God has zero patience for self-confident aggression in men. Like, he, he squashes it whenever he sees it. Take, for instance, Moses, all right? Moses, prince of Egypt, self-confident. He sees injustice. He goes down. He beats that Egyptian to death with all of his rugged manhood. And what does God do? He benches him for the next 40 years until Moses is a shell of himself and confident to do nothing before God says, all right, now I can work with you. Or you take Gideon. It's kind of the reverse story. Gideon was hiding out in a well, fearing for his life, cowering in fear, and God shows up and calls him mighty warrior, which is kind of a joke. And the whole purpose is that the only reason Gideon is a mighty warrior is because God is a mighty warrior, and Gideon just does what God tells him to do, right? And then Gideon has this amazing successful victory, and it goes to his head, and Gideon becomes this self-confident aggressor. And guess what? Everything goes downhill, right? God has no, no patience for bravado, right? Even Lamech, you might not know about Lamech, but he's like Cain's great, great grandson. And he has this like, this speech is like, look at me, I'm amazing, uh, blah, blah, blah. Look, I conquer women and men and blah, blah, blah. And he, you know, has this, all this bravado, but he's the picture of human depravity. Like that's how he's viewed. And so in our society, if there is this kind of cultural push that this is what manhood looks like, of course scripture says, no, that's not what manhood looks like. But on the other end, there's this other narrative that says what manhood looks like, you know, men are, are these passive buffoons that are emotionally incompetent, just waiting for a woman to come and rescue them and, you know, sophisticate them, right? Because that's the other narrative that we hear, but that's equally unbiblical. Because what we see in scripture isn't self-confident aggression, but it's also not apathy. What we see is a God-trusting action, right? It's not passivity, it's, it's active but it's not self-confidence that like, look at, you know, I'm the man. No, it's like he's the Lord and he's going to deliver us. This is what you see in Daniel and David and Joseph. It's not I'm the man, it's he's the Lord. And they go with this God trusting and they, they act, but not in self-confidence. There's no bravado there. That's not what biblical manhood looks like. And we, we, need, to take, uh, we need to take a look at what culture says about these things because culture is trying to narrow these things down and give us a, a really clear definition. But but these aren't the biblical definitions. And, and now, all of a sudden, there's this clashing between men and women and what that's supposed to look like and how these relationships are, are supposed to interact. Not just between one man and one woman, but you see in society there's a clash right now between mankind and womankind. Because we, as a society, and this is every society, but as a society, we take our cues from culture instead of taking our cues from Scripture of what manhood looks like. But there's another effect of this as well. If you narrow down, if you narrow down the picture of what manhood and womanhood looks like so much so that it, it's so defined like this, only a few people can actually fit this image. And what happens, you know, parents in the room, what happens when you take a, a culturally defined, not a biblically defined, but a culturally defined idea of manhood and you try to impose it on your son and you say, well, no, boys don't do that. Men don't do that. And you're talking about gender-neutral things. Like, 
100 years ago, pink was a boy's color, right? And now you come in and say, no, 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 only girls like pink. And, you know, and, you know boys, boys play sports. They don't like to dance, you know? And you come in and you start to take some things that are gender neutral and start to say, well, no, this is what manhood and womanhood looks like. And now all of a sudden, what do you think that's going to do to their sense of manhood? <laughs> but it's not their interests in gender-neutral uh, hobbies or extracurricular activities that defines them as a man or a woman. It's God who defines them as a man or a woman. And we need to fall back on that as Christians because the more we, we try to over-define these things or the more we try to flatten them out and reduce them to nothing, it decreases the harmony that God is after. And that is what God is after. He's taking two distinct entities that can be united in harmony. And you know with harmony, it requires distinction, right? You take two people singing. If they're singing the, same, if they're singing the melody together, that's not a harmony. And it lacks that depth and that beauty. But God is pursuing harmony. And it's, it's, you see it not just in the, the micro sense of one man with one woman, but in the macro sense of mankind and womankind working together. And this is what we see in Genesis at the end of this passage. In verse 24, it says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They took those, those distinctions and they became united together into one and there was harmony right? They were naked and there was no shame. It was harmony. But here's what's really cool. The creation narrative, it starts in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? These two distinct entities. And the creation narrative ends with a marriage between Adam and Eve. You jump to the end of the book, you go all the way to Revelation, the end of the Bible, and Jesus is going to return and it starts with a wedding. It's not between a man and a woman. It's a wedding feast where Jesus is united with his bride, the church. And then you know what happens next? It says there's a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven actually comes down and is united with the new earth such that God's space and our space become the same space where we're united with God forever. Like, this is our hope, heaven on earth. And when we, as Christians, when we choose to not flatten out the distinctions of gender, but also not to overemphasize and overdefine the distinctions of gender, but to understand man and woman as defined by God and to actually reach across the aisle and, and to accommodate each other's distinctions, to celebrate each other's distinctions, to build into each other's distinctions, not just with your, your husband or your wife, but with mankind and womankind in general. And I don't know what your relationships are like, but I think it's really important that if you're married or single, regardless, that as a man or a woman, you have, you have relationships with people of the opposite gender, right? And not, probably not just one. Like, my wife is not the picture of womanhood. She's a sliver of it. And so I, I actually interact with other women, and it's, like, great being a part of a small group because there's other couples and other women, and I, there's this unity that's taking place, and there's this harmony as men and women come together across our distinctions and finding equal love and affirmation in one another, and it, it truly is a harmony that gives us a picture, just a glimpse, of our future hope when heaven comes to earth. 
Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for just your, your thoughtfulness, God, in all that you do. And there are some of these things that uh, are confusing and challenging at times, and we don't fully understand, but we do know that you know what you're doing. And there's nothing that happened on accident. And our, our gender distinctions, they aren't accidents. You've thought these things through. You have a plan, and you're working these things together for our good and your glory. And I pray that we will come to, to trust what those plans are and to, to see and understand the beauty of the, the harmony that comes where we're able to, to reach across affirming and accommodating and celebrating each other's distinctions and finding unity in purpose and a unity in you. We pray that in all these things you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.